Oh, hi there, James here. Um, these are just the moments before I'm about to go live on Instagram. Um, and what I'm going to do for the next few weeks is every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Sydney time, I'm going to go live on Instagram. Uh, and uh, the account is called at coffee and a case note, all one word. And I'm going to deliver a CLE. So if you're, uh, if you can figure out what time Sydney 8 p.m. Wednesday is, uh, and you'd like to join in for a one-hour session. Please come along to my Instagram account. Um, it's going to be a bit of a vibe. I'm sitting here with a lovely whiskey, so it's a it's a bit of a after dark sort of affair. Um, you're going to hear me through this podcast. Uh, probably engage with some comments if I'm lucky enough to get any, and have a little bit of chat, a little bit of banter. So um, the vibe <laughs> is going to be nice and loose. The law is going to be nice and rigorous, and uh, I'm really excited to have you along for the journey. So thanks for your support. And why not go live right now? Hope to see you next Wednesday, 8 p.m. Sydney time. Okay. We are now live. And team, it is only after going live that I realize that this bottle is sealed with wax. I'm going to have to figure out a way to get in there. So there's going to be very little legal chat for this first little bit. G'day Aston Legal. G'day Jack. G'day DITC Wine. Great to see you all. Um, so what's going to happen is in just a couple of minutes, once I can figure out how to get this wax off, um, we are going to sit down and have a CLE. But for the moment, I think I'm being outmaneuvered by a wax seal which makes for an interesting start to proceedings I'm sure you'd agree okay so as I'm grappling with this there we go that's a nice sound <laughs> so, so we're off to a solid start g'day Eliza how are you uh, we're off to a solid start um, team uh, what we're going to do tonight is we are going to talk through exclusion clauses and um, the tone of tonight's chat Oh, it's Matt. Matt's joined. Matt, I just got open the uh, lovely whiskey you bought for us. Alex is here. Nick's here. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining in. So, I might start that again. Uh, welcome. Oh, James is here. Hello, James. Uh, welcome. Uh, every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Sydney time for the next few weeks, I'm going to go live. Uh, it's going to be a cheeky sort of vibe. Um, we are going to have a cheeky drink. So if you've got a cup of green tea, uh, I want to hear about it. So if you could leave it in the comments, that'd be fun. Uh, if you've got a, I don't know, cheeky beer, if you've got a toasted sandwich, I'd like to hear about it. Cheers to you. Um, this is a nice crystal glass that my granddad gave me. Looking forward to drinking out of that. Um, so team, every Wednesday, I'm going to go live. Every Wednesday, we're going to have, okay, Paul. Paul drank uh, red cordial on this last one. Paul, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what you're drinking tonight for tonight's session. Um, uh, I'm going to go live Wednesday, 8 p.m. in Sydney. Coke-flavoured cordial, Paul. Good to hear. Uh, Taylor Shiraz for Eliza. Excellent drinks for everyone. This is good. Um, so I'm going to go live on a Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Sydney time, and I'm going to give about a one-hour chat. Uh, and the chat is going to be sort of legally rigorous. And it's going to be tonally a little bit casual. Basically, what we've had so far is it. Uh, and it's going to be real fun. And we're going to start in about two minutes' time. Uh, while I'm here, I'll ask a couple of favors. Um, in another life, I co-host a podcast called Spooko, S-P-O-O-K-O. And um, if, you consider give it that, if you could consider giving that a follow, that would be really handy. Um, the other thing I should say, g'day, Rachel. The other thing I should say is that going live on Instagram has been notoriously a bit glitchy in the past. So there's a small chance um, that we'll either drop out or that I'll have to end and restart again. If I do have to end and restart, please bear with me. Uh, the Instagram gremlins uh, have not been kind to us in the past. So we're going to take just a couple more moments. And after we take those moments, we're going to dive in to a chat about exclusion clauses. Okay, I'm going to have a sip of this whiskey first. What is it? Um, it has a Scotch name that I'm not going to try to pronounce, Arbunad. Um, it's a Speyside single malt, and it's cask strength. So 
this could be one of these, what are they called, drunk drunk histories where, where our host gets increasingly faded as things go on. I'll try to keep things under control, but cheers to your very good health. Please let me know in the comments what you're drinking, and we'll start our presentation in just a couple of moments. Well, can you guys let me know if you can hear me, by the way? Phone's just resting strangely. There we go. There we go, I think. Mm. Okay. We feeling good? All right. Oh, hang on. Uh, okay, now there's no one in the live. Okay. <laughs> so I will end it and start it again. And let's see if the Instagram gremlins are friends to us. So team, in about 20 seconds, we're going to start an exclusion clause presentation. It's going to go really well, uh, despite the evidence we've seen so far. Okay. Okay, this is our second attempt at going live. I think we're doing well. Uh, I think we're grappling with those Instagram gremlins. G'day, Alex. And uh, in just a few moments, we are going to get started. Oh, yes, okay. I think I think we confronted all those gremlins. So I'm going to have a sip of this lovely uh, Speyside single malt. Uh, which is great fun, and I'm going to... Oh, g'day, Ferraz, how are you? Which is lovely, and we... Oh, g'day, Rachel. And we are going to get started. Okay. Exclusion clauses. Um, team, we are going to have a chat about... Uh, oh, in fact, maybe I should wait another few moments as the room fills up. Um, we are going to have a chat about exclusion clauses and I'm going to take the next minute or so to give you a bit of a background on what an exclusion clause is. It is lovely to see you all. I'm, I'm waving right back at you. I won't go touch the screen. Um, an exclusion clause is a clause that allocates responsibility for risk between you and I. So if you and I make a deal and that deal is recorded in a contract, what the exclusion clause will say is that I accept liability for these things and I exclude liability for those things. And the law of exclusion clauses can get a little bit tricky as we're going to find today. And what I hope we get through in this discussion is that, g'day everyone, g'day Cassandra, um, is that I hope uh, we, uh, g'day Liam, um, is that I hope we uh, develop a deeper and more profound understanding of the law and I hope as well that we work through a few practical examples that can really help you understand this complex stuff as the rubber hits the road. Now, um, I am recording this on my podcast, which is called Coffee and a Case Note. So if you have to drop out um, and you're interested in how things went, or if you're just joining now and you're interested in how things went before you arrived, this is all on the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. Uh, please feel free to go check it out there. Okay. Um, so I've got a name for tonight's paper that I enjoyed at the time, and the more I see it, the less I like it, but let's go with it anyway. It's called You're Out of Here, and I'm going to make some comments about exclusion clauses. So um, what I say is um, that the commercial practitioner, the lawyer who drafts documents, who makes contracts and that sort of thing, uh, can benefit from a few comments made from litigators, court lawyers, the sort of lawyer I am. And that's the perspective that's going to inform this paper. I'm a court lawyer. I'm going to make some comments about what happens in court. And hopefully those comments are going to assist those of you in business and those of you at the more sharp transactional end of the law. Uh, now, it's been said about exclusion clauses, these peculiar type of clauses we're talking about that uh, allocate liability between you and I that say, um, I'll accept this risk, but I'll exclude that risk. It's been said that exclusion clauses are the sort of clause that the court will interpret narrowly. Now, with respect, I disagree with that. Good to see you all. And hello there, Hunter. Good evening to you. Um, with respect, I disagree with that suggestion. Um, the suggestion that I would make to my commercial colleagues is not that, hey, you should draft your exclusion clause to be narrow, it is more you should draft your exclusion clause to be unambiguous. And that's the theme that's going to come through our chat tonight. We're going to want to avoid ambiguity. The reason for that is the law of contra preferentum, 
which is going to sound a little bit confusing, but we're going to end up coming to understand it by the end of this evening's talk. I promise you've got my word on that. And so essentially the law relating to exclusion clauses as we're worried about it tonight um, essentially works in the way that um, if a exclusion clause is unambiguous, right? if it's clear, then it operates exactly as the words say. It, it excludes and includes whatever the risks are. If, on the other hand, it is ambiguous, then uh, we wander down the path to contra preferentum. And contra preferentum describes uh, an area of the law or an operation of the law, I should say, that means that um, any person trying to rely on that clause, uh, it'll be read against their interpretation. So if there's ambiguity, um, the clause will be interpreted against the person seeking to rely on it. That's going to make sense as we work through this, I promise. And the theme as we work through this paper tonight is not going to be how you should make your exclusion clause narrow when you're drafting. The theme is going to be you should make your exclusion clause clear. That's what we're going to get on to. We're going to have five uh, elements to our discussion tonight. So I'm drinking a Speyside single malt. I'd be interested to hear what you guys are drinking, if that's all right. And man, cask strength is strong, hey? That's lovely. And, and it's serious. <laughs> so we're going to be five limbs to the chat today. Uh, we are going to talk about the why of exclusion clauses. We're going to sketch out sort of you know, why they exist at all. We're going to talk about the law. We're going to get a little bit technical and talk about the legal perspective on exclusion clauses. Then we're going to have a look at some real life examples of litigated cases where the court has had to um, has had to uh, decide on the outcome where there's been a dispute relating to exclusion clauses. That's the third bit. We're going to briefly chat about warning signs because uh, as we're going to find, some people who think they're worried about exclusion clauses are actually worried about warning signs. Sophia, thanks for joining us. Uh, and then finally, we're going to end with some practical suggestions for some things that I hope will be of value to you in practice. And as I say, um, I'm recording this talk right now uh, on this microphone here. I'll be uploading it to the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. So if you've got to step out, completely fine. Uh, you'll be able to find the paper on the pod. Okay, let's get to the first section of the talk. That is the why of exclusion clauses. Um, what I say is, when you are drafting a clause or when you are negotiating with the other side about a clause, um, it is important for you to reflect on why. What are we actually trying to achieve with this particular formula of words? What rights are we creating for our client? What risks are we protecting against? And if we have a, reflect, a reflection on the why of the exclusion clause, what we recall or what we understand is that they're really a means to allocate risk, right? I am going to accept some risks and then I'm going to use an exclusion clause to exclude other risks. And so the exclusion clause, the way it is designed um, and the way it operates is to allocate risk between parties. And often that risk will simply be who's going to pay for what insurance. But in any case, that is what we're doing. Exclusion clauses are not alien. They're not magic. They didn't, you know, descend from um, the uh, aliens when they came and made the pyramids or whatever other conspiracy theory you want to turn to. They are a commercial clause that have a fiddly little bit of a legal background. But in essence, you simply want to record the obligations of your client or the obligations you want to accept and you want to exclude the obligations that you don't want to accept. Okay. So let's dive into the law. This is going to be the boring bit. This is going to be the hard bit. So it's time to get our notepads out. Uh, time for us to have a sip of whiskey. This is actually going down beautifully. Uh, and tell me what you're drinking in the comments if you'd be so kind. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. When we're talking about exclusion clauses... It's easy to be dismissive and it's easy to walk too quickly along the path to contra preferentum. As practitioners, what it's worth remembering is that it's going to be a pretty rare exclusion clause that doesn't do what it sets out to do. You know, basically, um, you can pretty much read the contract and say, yeah, well, that's it. That's what the parties agreed. 
the only risk is going to arise when there's ambiguity. And it's lovely to have Shantan in the house learning about exclusion clauses. So this is good fun too. So um, when we're thinking about exclusion clauses, uh, as I said before, we're not dealing with an alien clause. We're not dealing with something crazy, something magical. We are taking a commercial approach and we're thinking about the way it works. And we are marching uh, along something that I referred to before as the path to contra preferentum. And let's remind ourselves that contra preferentum is the operation of law that means the person trying to rely on the clause is unable to do so. It's read against them. This is going to make sense. I know that sounds a bit fiddly. Okay. So, remember, if a clause is ambiguous, then we walk down the path to contra preferentum. And so, what is ambiguity? How are we going to decide whether or not something is ambiguous? And our first step is the very straightforward step of contractual construction. We just look at the clause itself and we decide what it means based on the normal tenets of contractual interpretation that are handed down from the cases over the years. What would a reasonable person in the position of the parties to the contract think that the clause did? And if the answer to that question is unambiguous, if the answer is clear, then there's no further inquiry. We don't walk down the path to contra preferentum. The clause simply does what it says. If it's clear what the clause says, then it does that. Okay? Because that's what the parties agreed. It's only if there's ambiguity that we progress to other issues. So, what is ambiguity? Uh, there's a Supreme Court of New South Wales decision that says, helpfully, that the word ambiguity is itself ambiguous. And uh, I'm inclined to agree. Um, so, we just need to do a little bit of picking apart what we mean when we say ambiguity. Um, but we can end our inquiry after I say this, pretty much, that ambiguous means having more than one plausible meaning. Right? Something is ambiguous if it can have uh, two or more plausible meanings. And if something's super-duper complicated and really long and really crunchy, but it has only one plausible meaning, then it is not ambiguous, it's just complicated. More than one plausible meaning is ambiguity. That is what we do if we see... Sorry, that is what puts us on, on inquiry if we're dealing with an exclusion clause. First question we ask, is it ambiguous? Put another way... Does it have more than one plausible meaning? So what if we answer yes? What's the next step of our inquiry as we work through uh, the law of exclusion clauses? Well, um, we remember that contra preferentum is a last resort and we're walking on the path to contra preferentum. We're not going straight there. Firstly, um, the court is going to exclude any meaning that is irrational or unjust, right? So we go to that clause. We see there are two plausible meanings. We exclude any meaning that is irrational or unjust. It's gone. It's out of there. Good night. And so having done that, we say, right, is there still more than one plausible meaning? And if the answer to that is yes, we then say, well, we avoid any irrational... Um, oh, good day, Eddie. Um, we avoid any rational... So I withdraw that. We avoid any irrational outcome that it's unlikely the parties would have would have intended. Right? So let's just walk through that path again. We see an exclusion clause, which is to say we see a clause that says uh, James will accept this much risk, but I'm not accepting any of that risk. If that clause is unambiguous, then that's fine. If that clause has more than one plausible meaning, it's got two possible meanings or more, then we exclude any meaning that is unjust. We exclude any meaning that is irrational and we exclude any meaning that it is unlikely the parties would have intended at the time they entered into the agreement. So let's say we've done that. Unjust, gone. Irrational, gone. Not intended by the parties, gone. And we've still got more than one plausible meaning. We've still got ambiguity in the meaning of the word as we're dealing with it. Well, the court is then at liberty to depart from the strictly literal interpretation. G'day, Spain 14. The court is then able to depart from the strictly literal interpretation of the clause 
and is able to uh, go ahead and form a view about ambiguity, reading between the lines in that way. So, as I say, we see an exclusion clause. I have some risk, you have some, I exclude some. If it's unambiguous, fine. If it's ambiguous, if it has more than one plausible meaning, then what it is is we get rid of unjust meanings, we get rid of irrational, we get rid of meanings that the parties would not have attended, and as we do that, we can depart from a strictly literal interpretation. So what happens then if we've still got two plausible meanings is we turn to contra preferentum. And remember, contra preferentum is the rule that the party who is seeking to rely on the clause is prevented from doing so. Okay, this is going to make sense when we get to our examples. Do not worry. Um, and as I say, if you are jumping in and jumping out of this one, don't worry. I'm recording it over here. We're going to upload it to the Coffee and a Case Note podcast if you're interested. Okay, that was the end of section two. So we spoke about the why of exclusion clauses. We just then spoke about the law of exclusion clauses. And really soon we are going to speak about some decisions, some examples where there have been boots on the ground, uh, where the rubber hits the road and whatever other metaphor we want to use of how these exclusion clauses work in practice. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, I'm going to reiterate that I'm recording this. It's up on the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. So if you need to duck out and you're still interested to catch the talk, that's fine. That's where it'll be. Uh, Yeah, so let's get to it. Oh, I should also say, this CLE is part of a set of CLEs that I'm going to do every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Sydney time. The tone is relaxed. Uh, I've got a nice uh, space-side single malt here uh, that's going down a little embarrassingly quickly. Uh, and if you feel like grabbing a glass of wine and coming along to the session, that's great. If you feel like telling me what you're drinking at your end as well, that's great. Um, we're just about to get into some decisions about exclusion clauses, so get excited. Uh, The first is a decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, a 2010 decision uh, called Santos Coffee and Direct Freight. What we've got here is we've got a coffee manufacturer and we've got a coffee distributor. And the coffee manufacturer and coffee distributor enter into an agreement whereby our coffee manufacturer uh, loads up some pallets with coffee and our coffee distributor collects those pallets, drives them off around town And then the following week comes back with those same pallets empty. And the point of the exchange is meant to be that in week one, let's say our, thank you for that love heart. I just saw a nice love heart come up the side. So thank you for that. Anyone who wants to send a love heart, you just go ahead. Um, The point of the exercise is meant to be that in week one, our distributor will collect five pallets, let's say full of coffee. Then in week two, our distributor will come back and return five empty pallets of coffee. And so that sort of week one into week two, week two into week three reconciliation is meant to take place over the course of the contract. Right, so things tick along. And they tick along for about three years uh, until the coffee manufacturer does its maths and realizes that it is somewhere in the range of a thousand pallets behind. And so what our coffee manufacturer does is say, uh, hey, <laughs> where are my pallets? Or words to that effect. And uh, a dispute arises. Now, man, uh, this is lovely whiskey. Oh. What are you drinking? Nick Coffell's commenting here with love hearts. I want to know what he's drinking. But anyway, let's get back into it. There are two contracts that govern the relationship between coffee manufacturer and coffee distributor. One of them is the sort of contract that we as lawyers uh, would be reasonably familiar with, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 pages long, uh, lots of clauses, lots of numbers, lots of execution spots, lots of initials all over it, that sort of thing. And it has a clause in it that says, and I'm going to paraphrase with apology, says something to the effect of the distributor shall be excused from liability in connection with the goods unless suit is brought within three months of delivery, right? Liability in connection with the goods, three months. And that is the big long written contract. 
Now, there's another contract that governs the relationship. And that contract I might call a docket contract. And essentially what happens there is that that is the contract whereby our distributor comes in to our manufacturer, collects the pallets and says, yeah, come on then, come and sign this, rips it off. And it's just a little piece of carbon paper, essentially, right? And it's got some terms and conditions on there. And one of the terms and conditions on the docket contract is no claim for pallets owing will be accepted after 90 days. No claim for pallets owing will be accepted after 90 days. And the first instance judge, uh, which is to say the judge uh, in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, where the matter first came on for trial, um, uh, said, well, the first contract, the big long legal one, that's binding, uh, and so you can only claim for three months. What the Court of Appeal said, and this is going to get you exclusion clause academics excited, what the Court of Appeal said um, is that the phrase in connection with the goods is capable of conveying multiple meanings. And as you are aware, a clause that is capable of conveying multiple plausible meanings uh, is ambiguous. And so uh, the court took steps uh, along the road to contra preferentum and got there and said the exclusion clause is knocked out due to the operation of contra preferentum. And so the nice big long legal contract is gone. The Court of Appeal then turns its attention to the docket contract, if we put it that way. The docket contract says no claim for pallets owing will be accepted after 90 days. And what the Court of Appeal said was, well, yeah, (laughs) that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty unambiguous. Uh, We've got a contract in place. None of the parties argued about what that meant. They all said, yeah, well, that's what it says. And so the court said, well, you entered into a contract that said no claim for pallets owing over 90 days. You want a claim for pallets owing from three years ago. Sorry. And the short point arising from that case, frankly, is that the only time contra preferentum will become an issue is if there's ambiguity. And so if you want your exclusion clause to stick like the uh, docket exclusion clause stuck in this matter, then you simply draft it clearly and you're entirely, more or less, protected. It's a good case, right? Um, I should say to anyone just joining now, lots of, lots of people wandering in, I appreciate that, that I'm recording this right now. I'll upload it on the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. Um, so if you need to duck out or if you want to check in with the first phase of our chat, um, that is fine. Um, okay. So, um, and as I've said before, we're going to have five different phases to our talk uh, tonight. We talked about the why of exclusion clauses. We talked about the law. Uh, We are now in the middle of talking about some examples of litigated cases when matters come before the court. So the next decision we're going to deal with is the Supreme Court of New South Wales again. Great court. And it's a decision called XL Insurance and BNY Trust Company. We are dealing with a lender, and a lender advanced money to a borrower in reliance on some valuations. Now, things didn't go the way the lender and borrower had hoped, and the borrower was unable to repay the lender. So what the lender did is went and chased the valuers. And what the valuers did is contact their insurer. And so we now find ourselves in a position where the valuers are saying, hey, like we're being chased (laughs) uh, in respect of these valuations. Your policy responds, so come on, you pay up. And what the insurer said is, no, 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 no. We've got an exclusion clause. We don't have to pay up. We're not going to pay up. And the matter was litigated and got all the way to the Court of Appeal. Now, let me tell you about this exciting exclusion clause. And because it goes for two-thirds of a page... I'm going to give you the abbreviated version. The exclusion clause said, in short, the insurer will not be liable to indemnify, it won't have to pay, if there is 
a valuation given for an entity that is not an authorised deposit-taking institution supervised by APRA, right? That is not an ADTI supervised by APRA. Essentially, um, and this is painting with real broad brush strokes, but we might say a bank (laughs) or a a very uh, solemn uh, and um, uh, sturdy institution, so evaluate. So the bank's not going to inde- so the insurer's not going to indemnify for evaluation um, that is provided to a party that is not an ADTI, an authorized deposit taking institution, unless there is a prudent lender clause. Right? Not an ADTI, no prudent lender clause, no indemnification from the insurer. That's what the policy said. Tell me what you're drinking, dudes. By the way, this is this is going down a treat. This um, Speyside single malt. Shout out to whatever that crazy Scottish distillery is called. All right. At first instance, which is to say first time the matter came before the court, what the judge said was, yes, look, I know that the lender was not an ADTI. And yeah, I know there's no prudent lender clause, but the fact that the lender was not an ADTI And the fact there was no prudent lender clause did not cause the loss. And so even if the lender was an ADTI, and even if there was a prudent lender clause, you still would have suffered this loss. And so that's irrelevant. And so who cares? Right? Uh, The Court of Appeal, uh, with respect, um, did what (laughs) uh, anyone uh, reading the decision might have expected them to do, uh, which is to say... Uh, they disagreed with the primary judge. And what the Court of Appeal said was no. Um, And no for two reasons. Firstly, the Court of Appeal said the purpose of the exclusion clause was, as you know from our earlier chat, to allocate risk. And what the insurer wanted to do was to allocate risk in a way that it didn't want to insure unless there was an ADTI, And if it was insuring for a non-ADTI lender, it wanted this prudent lender clause in there. And what the court said was, well, yeah, that's fine. Um, It is clear what the clause does. It is clear that the lender was allocating risk and it's completely appropriate. And what the Court of Appeal went on to say was to say, well, the party shouldn't have to go through this factual inquiry of, well, did the exclusion cause the loss or not? That is not an appropriate or legitimate requirement to make um, of uh, any commercial parties. They shouldn't have to go through this fact-finding mission in order to find out what a clause does. The clause simply operates on its face, and what it does is obvious. It excludes liability if there's a non-ADTI and if there's no prudent lender clause. In this case, both of those things happened. And so in this case, the insurer's liability was excluded. It's a good one, hey? Okay. Um, Admin, as I've said before, we're recording this. Coffee and a Case Note is the podcast. Uh, Every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Sydney time for the next five or six or seven weeks, I'm going to pop on. Um, We are going to have a nice CLE chat. I'm going to ask what you're drinking Um, As I say, I'm having a nice whiskey here. I'd be interested to hear what you're drinking if anyone wants to leave a comment. Or if you want to join the session, I think one of these buttons down the bottom does that. Um, Feel free to touch one of those um, and pop in to say hi. But for the moment, I'm going to have a sip of this, then we're going to move on to our next decision. Cheers. Okay. Oh, we've got Stuart Knox in the house. Stu, I'm drinking this. I don't know if it meets your approval. Cask strength is very strong, no? In any case, we're now halfway through and we're going to move on to our next decision, which perhaps ironically relates to ethanol, which occasionally is what cask strength whiskey tastes like, but um, not at the moment. Hey, cows in elephant suits made a request. Cows in elephant suits, what is up? And Matt has asked a brilliant question that I need to come to. Okay, declined. 
Matt, I'm going to answer this question and I'm also going to say, if anyone wants to answer a question, I think there's a question mark thing down the bottom that allows me to distribute the question and pop it up in the corner. So what Matt says is, um, hi, Beach, long-time fan. Matt, I'm a long-term fan of yours and I'm drinking a delicious whiskey you brought for me. Um, and Matt asks this very wise question. He says, look, if we're trying to avoid ambiguity, which is what I say we should be doing and which not to disclose too much, what Matt's wife does very effectively at her job, uh, working for an insurer, I'm sure. Um, if we're trying to ensure an exclusion clause is not ambiguous, does it have to be super short? Um, how do we go about minimizing ambiguity? And it's a really smart question. And that's why you pay commercial lawyers a lot of money to answer it. Um, there's no formula, Matt. It's a really smart question to ask. The answer is um, be unambiguous. So it can be pages long, paragraphs long, for so long as it makes sense, which is to say, for so long as it has only one plausible meaning, it is going to be unambiguous, which means that we are not going to walk down the path to contra preferentum. Great question. Thank you for it. All right. Shreya, what's up? Thanks for joining in. I'm going to push wave and see what that does. Hey, waving. All right. We are now going to head to a decision called Dalby Biorefinery and Allianz. This one's fun. There's ethanol and there's a fire, guys. So the facts are uh, the facts are good fun. Let's let's pull up the old sleeves. Thank you, mate. Let's pull up the old sleeves. Right. So we've got an ethanol producer and a biofuel a biofuel refiner. If that is the right word, a refiner. Um, and uh, this refiner, this ethanol producer. <clears throat> stored grain in a number of bays at its refinery and um, it enters into negotiations with an insurer to get an insurance policy for the grain and the parties uh, end up you know meeting there's a meeting of the minds and they enter into an insurance policy wackadoo the insurance policy includes an exclusion clause and what does that exclusion clause say it says pardon me That <clears throat> the insurer will not be liable in respect of any loss, and again I'm paraphrasing, um, through spontaneous combustion, spontaneous fermentation or heating, or any process involving the direct application of heat. And you already know where we're going. One morning, smoke was detected in one of the refinery's bays. There's a fire, right? And emergency services are called in and no one's hurt, but a lot of the grain is badly damaged. Uh, hello there, Idahobo. Lovely to see you. I'll push wave and see what happens. Um, the grain is damaged. And so what the refiner does, what the policyholder does, is turn to the insurer and say, hey, my dudes, grain's damaged. Uh, we need to sort this out. And what the insurer says is, <clears throat> no, that uh, is excluded by these perils exclusions that we looked to before. Okay. What happened then was the matter was referred to an expert by the court called a referee. And that referee expert was required to form a view about what happened to the grain. Why did the heating occur? And the referee formed the view that the damage was caused by self-heating, but the referee was unable to decide whether that was wetting from rain, whether it was ambient temperature, whether it was the temperature of the grain when it arrived at the refinery, whether it was humidity, what the cause for this self-heating was. So the referee says, yes, it's self-heating, but I don't know why. Right? At first instance, the judge looks at the exclusion clause and says that the word spontaneous doesn't apply to the word heating, which means that heating is part of the exclusion. Because you remember that the exclusion clause protected the insurer from liability for spontaneous fermentation or heating. And what the trial judge said was that word spontaneous applies only to spontaneous fermentation. It doesn't apply... When we say spontaneous fermentation or heating... We don't mean spontaneous fermentation or spontaneous heating. We mean spontaneous fermentation or non-spontaneous heating. 
And so it's excluded because this is non-spontaneous heating. Bang, exclusion. What the Court of Appeal says is, uh, no, <laughs> that um, spontaneous should not be uh, divorced from the word heating, that uh, spontaneous fermentation or heating does mean spontaneous fermentation or spontaneous heating, that there's no ambiguity about that, that that's clear. And so the exclusion is upheld because spontaneous fermentation or spontaneous heating uh, was the cause of the damage, as the referee found, and so it's appropriate that the insurer be excused. And uh, in coming to its decision, the full court of the federal court said, look, we've got to be careful before we jump too quickly to contra preferentum. Right? Contra preferentum being the thing that people use to try to beat insurers' heads against the ground and say, contra pref, contra pref, you still have to pay, essentially. Um, uh, you try to do it in a more melodic way than that, um, but we don't have to dive into that now. In essence, the court said, look, before you go around challenging exclusion clauses in insurance policies, um, let's just remember that if things are unambiguous, if they're nice and clear, then uh, any challenge to those clauses is not really strongly, uh, strongly aligned or strongly on the path to success. Okay. We are doing well. We're going to move on to our next decision. This is a decision of the England and Wales Court of Appeal, Civil Court of Appeal uh, of 2017. Now, what is interesting, or what is interesting to me, uh, is how delicious this whiskey is, and it is going down a treat. And if I'm becoming less and less well-organized in my thinking, um, I don't regret it at all because I'm having a great time. Um, but what I should say is interesting about this decision is it is not binding law in Australia, um, but I nonetheless say it's a useful way for us to sort of sketch out the issues uh, when we are thinking about exclusion clause law. We've got uh, a builder, and the builder is Persman. And we've got an engineer, and the engineer is Arab. And they are working on a great big site in Wales, and there is asbestos discovered on the site. Now, uh, what Persimmon, the builder, says is, look, you've been negligent, engineer, in that you failed to identify this asbestos on the site, and we're going to see damages from you. It's an interesting thing to do because the contract between the builder and the engineer, hello there, Karma Sethuel, uh, because the contract between the builder and the engineer included an exclusion clause which said liability for any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded. Reasonably clear. What the builder says is no, 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 no. Um, liability for any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded actually means liability for causing any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded. The engineer, we're not saying the engineer caused this claim, uh, and so it's not excluded. Now, the court was <laughs> unimpressed with this argument and called it nonsensical. And this can be, understand, uh, this can be understood if we think about the facts. The likelihood that an engineer is going to cause asbestos damage in 2017 uh, is reasonably low, and so the likelihood that the contract is going to deal with allocations of risk in relation to asbestos damage is reasonably low, and so the exemption, which is to say the exclusion clause, was upheld, and the engineer did not have to pay any damages on account of the asbestos. Now, in delivering his judgment, Lord Justice Jackson had this use, useful comment that I say ought to inform us, uh, and I'm going to go through it a little slowly with apology. What Lord Justice Jackson says is that exemption clauses, or what we would call exclusion clauses, uh, are part of the contractual apparatus for distributing risk, as you and I know. Now, there's no need to approach them with horror or a mindset determined to cut them down. Contractors and consultants who accept large risks will charge for doing so and no doubt take out the appropriate insurance. Contractors and consultants who accept lesser degrees of risk will reflect that in the fees they agree. So we're back where we started 
An exclusion clause is a commercial clause that does what it says on the tin. And it's only after we work through all these steps on the path to contra preferentum that any issues arise. If it's clear, then it's fine. Okay. Team, let's do a bit of admin. We are in the middle of a talk that has five sections. The first section was the why of exclusion clauses. We worked through the why, therefore allocating risk. The next section was the law of exclusion clauses. And what we said was, um, if there's ambiguity, then we start walking down that path to contra preferentum. The third step was some examples. Remember, we had examples, lots of insurers in there that helped us understand the way exclusion clauses work in practice. Uh, And now I'm going to make some practical suggestions for some approaches that you can take in practice. Hello, Sam. Oh, can I say Sam? This is good fun. Um, I'm going to make some practical suggestions for things that uh, you can use in practice if you're a lawyer or the things you can turn your mind to if you're a commercial person. But before I do that, I'm having another sip of this whiskey and I'll invite you to let me know if you're having a sip of anything fun as well. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. All right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, hello there, Neil. This is good fun. So um, a little bit more admin. I'm recording this just here. So if you've arrived sometime after 8.02, as some of you have, which I'm very grateful for, um, then you can just head to my podcast, Coffee and a Case Note, um, that we will be, or I will be uploading this to shortly. Look, I'll do it fairly soon. It should be up by about 10 p.m. tonight. Um, so, you know, if you need something on the commute into work tomorrow, that's fine. Do I share tasting notes? Sam, no, I'm not going to share tasting notes. Um, basically, I have two modes for tasting that's a bit yum, yum or nah. And this one's yum and it's not nah. And that's basically how it works. Um, great comment here from off grid survivalist, uh, engineering being nonsensical. It's tough times. I've got to agree there. Neil, thanks for the wave, mate. Great to see you. Okay. Oh, I clashed with the business law committee. Apparently thanks. Thanks for the shout out. Thanks for the shout out. Karma Seth, you I appreciate it. Um, look, and if you want to send anyone in the business law committee to the podcast, we're recording here, but in the meantime, I hope you're having a sip of something yum. Thank you for these lovely comments, guys. I, I really enjoy getting them and let me try to repay <laughs> your kindness by talking about some practicalities when we are thinking about exclusion clauses. I'm coming from a litigator's perspective, as I said before. And so the suggestions I'm making to my commercial colleagues when they're drafting exclusion clauses are made uh, with that sort of litigation flavor to them. What I say is that uh, firstly, we want to apply our basic fundamental principles when we're drafting exclusion clauses. We want to obtain instructions. We want to give good advice. And to the extent necessary, we want to engage in negotiations or closely review and advise on whatever's provided to us. That's a bit trite, but it's worth bearing in mind. But what I say is that for the practitioner, there are more opportunities to flex your expertise um, than merely doing a good job. You can have a think about the power relationship between the parties. Because if you remember what an exclusion clause is all about, is about allocating risk. And if you want to show you've got a bit of commercial nous, or if you're a business person watching or listening to this and you want to ensure the exclusion clause <coughs> operates in the way that you hope it does, you want to reflect on the power relationship between the two parties. What you also want to reflect on is the market. And so if you are a wharf lawyer or if you are a wharf business person and you know all the law about wharves, and you know what that wharf did last year and this wharf's going to do next year and you know about all the wharf issues and uh, you've got your finger on the pulse of the industry, you as a lawyer are able to apply your wharf expertise by saying, hey, do you know what everyone in the wharf industry is doing? They're excluding this and accepting this or whatever it may be. Similarly, if you're in business and you understand how these risks are allocated, when you're speaking to your lawyer about how we're going to draft the agreement, how we're going to work through the exclusion clause, you can sit down and say, well, actually, the way wharves are going at the moment, X, Y, and Z is appropriate, and A, B, and C is not. And so you want to apply that market knowledge when you're taking a look to this. I'm going to wave to the Aussie lawyer, the Aussie lawyer. 
I am a Aussie and Aussie law Aussie lawyer, but I'm I'm not the definitive one. The Aussie lawyer, welcome. Uh, and anyone who's having a cheeky drink, I'd be grateful if you could let me know what it is. You can let me know in the comments. Again, single malt over here, hugely enjoy it. Cask strength, which uh, is for tough guys only, and I'm not a tough guy, but I'm uh, I'm enjoying it. So, let me get to the practicality, to the nuts and bolts for my commercial colleagues. Um, the suggestions I'd make when you're staring at a draft or when you're negotiating. The absolute fun, g'day Louise, g'day Nico. What I say is the fundamental position is you want to avoid ambiguity. Right? You want the clause to clearly explain what it does. Uh, that way it will do what you have said it will do. Avoid ambiguity at all costs. When we say ambiguity, we mean avoid multiple plausible meanings. We want all of our clauses, no matter how long, how short, no matter how complicated, how simple, to be unambiguous, to have one plausible meaning. Because the only risk to your exclusion clause, remember, the only reason that you're going to walk that path to contra preferentum is if there is ambiguity. That's what we want to avoid. And all these other steps I'm going to set out are basically around that avoidion Avoision, gosh, that whiskey, avoidance of ambiguity. Hello there, HKH solicitors. Lovely to have your company. So we're going to avoid ambiguity when we're drafting exclusion clauses. We're going to clearly identify what liability is being excluded. Are we excluding liability for negligence? Are we excluding them for acts of X, acts of Y, acts of Z? Hello, Chamberlain's Law Firm. Lovely to have Chamberlain's here. They are my employers, so hopefully I will not. It's lovely to have Robert Wynn here. Robert, thanks for joining us. Um... So we're avoiding ambiguity in practice. We're clearly identifying what liability is being excluded, right? We're making sure that if it's negligence, we're excluding that. If it's X, excluding that. If it's Y, excluding that. If the reason we're allocating risk the way we are is to get one party to obtain one kind of insurance and another party to obtain another kind, great. That's actually worth setting out in the policy. Party X gets insurance Y. Georgia, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. We want to use separate clauses if we're excluding, and this can aid severability and enforceability. So if we want to exclude liability for A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, we want to make those clauses as severable as possible. Because remember, if we take the path down contra prefer path toward contra preferentum and we get there in the end, then the risk is that we're not able to rely on the clause. So what we want to make sure is if we want to rely on one of these exclusions in future, that we have them nice and severable and separate little bits so that we only lose this little slice that we're surgical rather than losing the entire exclusion. Uh, we want to keep records of the negotiation and don't forget the reason for that geez, is that uh, we are going to apply the basic tenets of contractual construction when we come to the exclusion clause and that can include evidence of the negotiation that's been undertaken between the parties. And you want to monitor the sector. Look, this comes back to my earlier suggestion. Um, it is a good opportunity for you as a practitioner to flex your expertise, to pick on wharves again, as, I, as uh, Nick Koffel commented earlier. Um, to take the example of wharves again, a great way for you to show you're the best wharf lawyer or a great way uh, for you to... <laughs> Um, be in business and get the best outcome for your business is to understand your sector and make sure your risk allocation in your exclusion clause um, is a great uh, reflection of that understanding. Um, the Aussie lawyer is drinking Pepsi from a Coca-Cola glass. We've got rebels here in the comments and it's very, very exciting. Um, so team, what I'm sometimes asked in this context is, look, how much liability can you limit in an exclusion clause? The answer to that question within the bounds of constraints like the Australian consumer law and this sort of thing is as much as the parties agree. Remember, the exclusion clause is just a commercial clause. And yeah, oh, Nick, Nick asks a great question um, that I'm sort of in the middle of answering right now. Um, within the bounds of constraints like the Australian consumer law or to take the example of a solicitor-client relationship, the fiduciary duties that a solicitor owns a client, you can exclude things like negligence in some circumstances. I don't think that, sorry, I think conduct that would be negligent from a solicitor would capture a breach of that solicitor's fiduciary duties, which I don't think 
Ooh, in fact, I don't really want to give advice on the fly about this, but surely not is my response to that. Um, but in any case, you want to bear in mind these clauses are commercial, and so they can be negotiated up and down within certain bounds as far as you would like. So, team, our goal tonight, do you remember, was to talk about the why of exclusion clauses. Why are they? They are for us to allocate risk. The law of exclusion clauses, well, if there's ambiguity, then we're going to walk that path towards contra preferentum. And contra preferentum, you'll recall, (coughs) allows, sorry, prevents the party attempting to rely on the clause from being able to do so. What is ambiguity? It is more than one plausible meaning. Our third section was we worked through some examples of some cases. We talked about some valuers. We talked about some burning ethanol some engineers and some builders and some other shenanigans, and hopefully that gave you a bit of an insight to how exclusion clauses work. And I just made some practical suggestions for you then, which at the heart of them were avoid ambiguity, describe what it is you want to protect, and protect it. And the final aside I want to make is about warning signs, and I don't want to spend long on this, um, and that is uh, because it is not an area of the law that I've litigated on before, and um, and <laughs> um, it is uh, not one that I've got that much time to share. Uh, thank you for this very kind comment, off-grid survivalist. E- extremely kind, and I'll have to cry about that later, but I will just have a sip of whiskey to get my head together about warning signs. Now, under the uh, Civil Liability Act 2002 in New South Wales, um, there's no proactive duty to warn of an obvious risk. So then the question comes, right, well, what is obviousness? There's been some judicial consideration given to this. Um, The cases I refer to are going to be well-known to negligence lawyers. I'm a commercial litigator, so these ones are still interesting to me. Um, Carey and Lake Lake Macquarie City Council, Court of Appeal decision in 2007. Um, Essentially, we've got a person riding a bike at night who rides into a bollard, bang, in the daytime, this bollard would have been really, really easy to see. At nighttime, it was really, really difficult to see, such that the bike rider rode into it. So the question the court was asked was, well, was it an obvious risk? In the daytime, super obvious. At nighttime, didn't see it, ran into it. And what the court said is, well, obviousness is taken at the time of the damage. And so in this case, it was not an obvious risk. And so a warning sign was needed. Does that make sense? Because at night time, it was difficult to see. Gosh. Meaning that it was not obvious, meaning that a warning sign was needed. And then we think about the reasonable steps that ought to be taken. And we turn to a decision called Dedera, which many of you will know better than I will, which went to the High Court in 2007. And in essence, we've got people jumping off a bridge in New South Wales. There are warning signs in place. Still people jump off the bridge and someone injures himself very, very badly. And what the court found was um, the warning signs were actually reasonable. So the irrelevant authority was not negligent, notwithstanding the uh, injury still occurred. And so uh, even though the signs didn't stop the behavior, they were still reasonable. But if I can just close that little chat about warning signs by saying it's a fiddly area. And for anyone advising on warning signs, it's worth reading this stuff real closely uh, and potentially making a few phone calls, which is what I tend to do when I'm advising on a warning sign matter. Okay. Team, that's the final substantive comment I had to make. So thanks for your time. Um, If you've only joined recently, um, you are... Um, lucky-ish because I've recorded the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to upload it to my podcast, which is called Coffee and a Case Note. So if you've missed anything, you can go grab it there. Every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Sydney time for the next five or six weeks or so, I'm going to go live on Instagram. and I'm going to do one of these things. I'd love to have your company. Um, if you're inclined to do me a favor, I'd love it if you could spread the word. So if you could please tell one person about this Instagram account or about the way I do these things or about the podcast, I'd be grateful. Um, If you've got any questions, please DM me or you're welcome to ask now. Um, But if that is the end of the discussion, I'm really grateful to have the chance to come and talk about this stuff. As you can tell, I'm a bit bit keen, I'm a bit enthusiastic about it. And so it's really, really nice to get to spend this time with you. 
So what I'm going to do is close the paper. I'm going to have a big sip of whiskey. I'm going to see if any of your questions come up. And if they don't, then I'm going to wish you a very good evening. Jack, you're very welcome. What a lovely comment. Thank you. Cask Strength. Team, I would love to have your company next week. Please do join me. Thanks so, so much for your time. Uh, and please spread the word if you'd be so kind. Would love to get a nice room full of people talking about whatever subject we talk about next week. Maybe trustees for sale, hey? That could be exciting. Thanks so much.